0: we we'll do a couple of housekeeping things before uh, we jump into the message. One, because uh, I had people ask, even though we've had it on the screen, sometimes you may not uh, get here in time to hear the announcements or whatever. Uh, our Easter uh, services next Sunday are, are the regular times. We're doing both services. We're doing uh, 8.30 and 10.30. Um, and one reason I didn't want to go away from that and try and do one service or anything on Easter is that really that's a great time for you to invite somebody. Uh, because at Christmas and Easter, even people that are non-church people kind of think, well, maybe I'm supposed to go to the church. You know? So it would be a great time for you to invite somebody to come and be with you. Uh, next week, we'll be wrapping this uh, series up. We're going to talk about a personal reason why we ought to believe the Bible, and that is it can change your life. So we kind of saved that message intentionally for Easter Sunday. So hopefully we'll have people have their life changed, uh, Easter Sunday as they think about, uh, Jesus and what he has actually uh, done for them, uh, on, on the cross. Uh, second thing is that in two weeks we will just have one service. Uh, we're gonna have one worship service at 1030 because we're having a celebration service celebrating, uh, the paying off of our location that we have up here behind Captain's Galley that we rented to cast. And, uh, you, you beat me to something. We wrote a check and it's been paid off, okay? So now you can applaud that. Uh, but, uh, but we're gonna have a celebration, uh, that day and it'll be a little bit different type of service. I probably won't preach a full message, but we're gonna allow some room for some testimonies. We're gonna take the Lord's Supper, uh, together before we go upstairs and then we'll have a, uh, a meal, uh, upstairs to get kind of, uh, celebrating, uh, our opportunity to do that. Uh, third thing, housekeeping wise, that Um, you heard him talking about in the video that I need to restress sometimes after the service, uh, you will meet up with some friends or whatever, and you'll leave a car here and then you'll go eat. Uh, it's fine for you to do that today, but if you do, you need to leave your vehicle uh, probably out here in the grass area. There's some gravel there. Actually, you just can't see it because the grass has started growing up through it. But it's a safe place for you to leave your vehicle. And here's why they're doing an autocross event uh, in our parking lot. I, I, gu- I about guarantee you we're the only church in Caldwell County, maybe the only church in the state, that today after church is having an autocross event. What does that mean? It means don't leave your car there because they may slide into your car while they're running the road course outside. The town's approved the, the parking lot being closed, and, uh, and they'll be doing that so we don't need any cars sitting in the way uh, while they are, are doing that uh, that event. And it's just a fun event, so if you want to show up and uh, and run it, that's perfectly fine to do so. It's not like it's uh, for any, any particular uh, reason. So anyway, remember those things. Um, on three weeks down the road, we're going to start a new series. And the new series is going to be piggybacked to this series, and it's going to be called this. So since the Bible is true, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) In other words, if all this stuff we've been talking about lets us know the Bible is true, we need to do something with it. It needs to have application in our lives, so we're going to be dealing with some various topics for a month or two months or so. Uh, Because the Bible is true, we need to pay attention to what it says, and we need to uh, apply it to our lives. We have been in this uh, series now for, um, I think this is six weeks today, and uh, so far uh, we've just been looking at several different reasons why we ought to trust the Bible. Uh, one was that logical reason we started out with uh, the first week. The Bible gives testimony about itself being the Word of God some 1,500 times. So that's kind of a logical, self-evident reason we ought to believe the Bible. We looked at some historical reasons to believe the Bible based upon archaeology. Uh, we looked at prophetical reasons to believe the Bible as we looked at prophecies and how they've been fulfilled exactly as the Bible said they would be fulfilled. And that gives us a reason to believe the Bible. We looked at this uh, doctrinal term, Christological reason, That's simply means this. Since Jesus believed the Bible, we need to believe the Bible. I mean, especially us as Christians, you can't apply that to a lost world. But if Jesus believed the Bible, we better believe what Jesus believed, because if not, you're calling into question who he is. You're calling into question his deity if you start to question whether or not Jesus knew what he was talking about when he quoted the Bible, and that'll pop up in today's message some also. Uh, Last week, the uh, message that the world wouldn't expect us to have was a scientific reason to believe the Bible, because there's actually, I think, more scientific reasons to believe the creation story when you look at the order of the universe and how specific the universe is, than there is for you to believe some big bang happened and everything just haphazardly came about as, as it is. I think it takes more faith to believe that than it does just to believe there's a creator and believe the Bible. Today, we're going to look at, uh, at a kind of a little bit different type of message, and I'll be transparent with you guys. I had a little bit of trouble getting in gear with this message this week uh, because it talks about the canon of scripture, and that's important stuff, but it's not kind of like man, I'm excited about that type of stuff, like the scientific reasons and other other things that we've talked about so far. But it is really important for us to understand where the Bible came from, it, for us to understand how the Bible we hold in our hands uh, today, and hopefully that you read and you don't just carry to church with you, uh, how in the world that Bible came uh, about. Uh, the word canon uh, is a uh, Doctrine Word that people use to talk about the canon of Scripture. Word literally means a, a measuring rod or a rule. And when it's used in conjunction with the Bible, you're saying, well, how is this measured? You know, how how did the decisions come about to include certain things in the Bible and then some other things are not included in, in the Bible? Like in the Protestant Bible, you don't have the Apocrypha uh, and the reasons for that. We'll talk about that as we go through uh, through the message. Some people erroneously believe this. They believe that there was some type of convention or council or meeting in a dark room and guys maybe smoking cigars, making decisions or something. And they got together and they had this meeting and they decided in the meeting what's going to be in the Bible and what's not going to be in the Bible. Now that actually is not what happened to bring about the canon of scriptures. There have been a couple of times where these councils met and they kind of affirmed what the church was already saying was Scripture, but there was not this meeting that took place to where everyone just decided to get together and, uh, and, and sat down, and, and some religious guys, uh, I'm getting some kind of noise off my mind, uh, and, and, and some religious guys just decided, you know what, we're going to put that in the Bible, that's part of the Bible, and that's not part of the Bible, and, and that's not the way it took place. You'll understand more, hopefully, uh, about how it actually took place. Uh, as we get further through, uh, through the message. Uh, in particular, there will be a section of where I'm going to talk about um, Catholicism and their view of the Scriptures and the Protestant church. Now, I want to tell you up front before I get to that point, uh, that is not me trying to shoot at Catholics, uh, and, and it's not me trying to say Protestants are so much better, because I'll tell you up front, I believe that there are God-free and cross-trusting people in the Catholic Church that really believe what the Bible teaches and they know Christ as their Savior. I also think there are those that just hold to the traditions of men. But you know what? That's true in Protestant churches too. <laughs> Regretfully, there, there, there are Baptist churches that, yes, we, we have the Bible that we go by, but we start making up our own rules, you know, and, and we try and go by that. And that's like a tradition of men also. So I want to let you know that before I get to that part of the message, because I didn't want you to think that I'm up here being mean spirited or something, shooting at Catholics and all, because that's not really what the, the message is, uh, is about. It's important for us to, to ask questions like these, uh, where did the Bible come from? Who decided what writings would be in the Bible? And hopefully this message will help you understand that a little bit better as, uh, as we go through the message this, this morning. So to begin with, if you're following along in in, in your notes, the first thing we're going to talk about, I really have two big questions this morning. The first question is how did God providentially, in other words, God supervised this, how how did God providentially provide and protect the scriptures? How did that come about? How how did God provide the Scriptures to us? How did God protect the canon of scriptures to where we have the Bible as it is today? We've talked about things already in this series, like the Bible being inspired by God. But we will talk about that also again today, and then we're going to talk about how, uh, more or less, the Bible was inspected by God's people as it was written over a period of years, and they saw value and merit and understood that was God speaking to them. It wasn't just writers, uh, men writing things, writing things down. So let's talk about, uh, talk about biblical inspiration uh, for, for a moment. Uh, in 2nd Timothy chapter three, verse 16, 17, kind of the pat scripture that we go to when we talk about inspiration, uh, some translations say all, all scripture is inspired, uh, by God. The, the English standard version says all, all scripture is breathed out and you'll see the word study why that's true in a minute. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction And training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now, that phrase, breathed out by God, is a Greek word that just literally means divinely breathed. That that, that God himself breathed into these authors of Scripture. He, He moved upon them by the Holy Spirit of God. He breathed it into them. All Scripture, he breathed it into them. And because it is from God, and it's not from men... It makes it profitable for us. It is beneficial for us to, to use it in, uh, in in teaching, to use it for reproof, to use it for correction, to use it for training in righteousness, that we might be competent. In other words, that you and I might be equipped to serve God. Uh, that's why we need to use the, the Scriptures in in that way. Now, now Peter said this also in, in 2 Peter. He said, and we have something more sure. Uh, I read this passage in a series a couple of months back. But uh, he says, we have something more sure, the prophetic word. Now, now, let me tell you what he's saying when he says we have something more sure. Uh, we don't have time this morning to read all the scriptures and be bringing it all up on the screen. But if you read the verses previous to this passage of scripture, you're going to see that Peter's talking about when he was up on the Mount Transfiguration and they heard God speak from heaven. Now, to me, that's pretty significant. You're there, heaven opens up, and you hear God speak. Now, factor that into what Peter's writing. Peter says we have something more sure, more sure than even hearing God speak out of heaven. That's what he's saying. The prophetic word to which you'll do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what Peter's saying This, the Bible that you have, the scriptures that he alluded to in that day and time, that is every bit as significant and more so than just hearing God speak from heaven. Because it's been protected through all those years. It has this unity of all those years that it's been brought together. God inspired it. He moved upon the hearts of men by the Holy Spirit of God and and they wrote down God's word. It wasn't just their idea. It wasn't their whim. Somebody didn't eat bad pizza one night, wake up in the middle of the night and think, oh, I think I'm having an epiphany from God and write down a bunch of stuff. Instead, it was God actually moving upon their hearts. That's where biblical inspiration comes from. God moved upon their hearts and he gives us this prophetic word of God. Now it's something I, I pointed out to you, uh, early on in, in, in this series. And, and by the way, well, I'm about to skip over something that's really important here. Let me come back to it. And, and we've already seen in this series and I've already alluded to it today. Jesus quoted the old Testament, right? That's the Christological reason we're talking about. Jesus quoted the Old Testament. He said over and over and over again, it is written. That means it stands written forever. It's what Jesus is saying. So Jesus, if he is God in the flesh, and that's what the Bible teaches he is, he either knows what he's saying or he doesn't. And we can't have it both ways. So another reason for us to believe the Bible is inspired is because Jesus quoted from it. So let's talk about biblical inspection for a minute. Because this is kind of where the canon stuff comes in. Not only did God inspire his word, but he did it in such a way. And it was given to men in such a way over such a large period of time. That we have evidence that I think ought to convince us that it is really the, the word of God. In the first message in this series... I gave you this information, and it fits in here again, so we need to come back to it and focus on it again. The Bible is a library of 66 books. In the Old Testament, uh, you, you have 39. In the New Testament, you have 27, written by 40 different authors who, by the way, didn't know each other. They didn't all sit down in a room. Some of them knew each other, but all of them, the writers of the Old Testament and New Testament, didn't know each other. They didn't sit down in a room and decide, hey, let's write a book and make it sound like it's from God. Because they can scientifically prove when it was written. You've got 40 different authors. Think about their various backgrounds and how in the world would the unity of the message of Scripture come about from their various backgrounds. Because you have kings, you have shepherds, you have fishermen, you have tax collectors, you have prophets, and you have a physician over a period of 50 years. Hundred years that's writing this stuff down. And it all has its unity of purpose and unity of message all the way over that length of time. It was written in three different regions and three different cultures, in Asia, Africa, and Europe, in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, using various styles of writing. Some was history, some was law, some was prophecy, some was proverbs, some was poetry, some was songs, some was parables, etc. So you have that take place over 1,500 years, and it keeps the unity of the message over that length of time. Now, that leads me to make a scientific-type conclusion that we were making last week about creation. Because when you look at how specific creation is in the order of the universe, you can't say it just came about. It just happened. Neither can you say the Bible just came about. Only God could supervise that many different authors over that many different years, over that many different regions, for the Bible to have a unity A message. It's not written by man. They might have pinned it down, but God used them as his instruments and he gave them what they needed to write in the Bible. Now, for more details, we're going to divide it out. We're going to talk about the Old Testament canon. We're going to talk about the New Testament canon. The Jews, over a period of time, as the Old Testament was being written, wasn't all written at one time, it was over a period of years. And as it was being written, they were recognizing, hey, this is something different. This is special. This is from God. And they were honoring it as coming from God. They were even protecting it and preserving it as it coming from from God, that God was revealing it to them. The the Jews agree to this. They they believe that about 400 years before Jesus was born, the canon of the Old Testament was finished. And, And no one has added to it since then. They, they agreed that that was the canon of Scripture. Then it was like there was silence for 400 years between the end of Malachi and the birth of Jesus to where you didn't have a word from God. It almost reminds me of our You know, people over that 400 years might have been thinking, where in the world has God gone? And people probably feel like day in time well that 400 years of silence was ended by jesus showing up and the things in this culture today are going to be ended by jesus showing up one day amen but but they honored the scriptures they protected the scriptures over that period of time let me give you some examples of it uh as we look at some some verses and we think about the old testament canon first of all exodus 24 and verse 4 and moses wrote down what does it say all the words of the lord In Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 31, it says, It came to pass, when Moses had made an end of writing the words of this law in a book until they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites, which was the priesthood of that day and time, the, the Levites, which bear the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and put it in the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God that it may be there for a witness against thee, against you. Now, the reason I use the King James there is because it's really clear that he's saying this. And of course, it was a scroll. It wasn't like our Bible today. But Moses gave that to the Levites, the law. And he said, take this and put it inside the Ark of the Covenant. Now, hopefully you know enough about the history of the Ark of the Covenant to understand something. That's a pretty safe deposit box to put it in. Because if you touched it in the wrong way, people died. The Old Testament tells us people died from handling the Ark of the Covenant the wrong way. So if God's Word has been deposited in the Ark of the Covenant, that's safer than your bank. <laughs> you know, no one's going to just go and break into it. And it was put there as a witness against the people. Because they showed their sins to them. And that's why the blood was poured out on the mercy seat on the day of atonement. To stand between the people and their sins and holy God and the word that held them as sinners before God. But it was kept and preserved in a safe place in that day and time. Look what Daniel says. Daniel, who of course we know was right in the word of God himself. But he said, in this year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived... In the books, the number of the years that according to the word of the Lord, Jeremiah, the prophet, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So most believers understand that Daniel wrote about 70 years, but here he's saying, Hey, I'm writing about that partly because Jeremiah talked about it and God told Jeremiah what to say. And he's referring to the writings of Jeremiah as being the writings of God. Nehemiah, years later, look what he says about Moses, and Moses received the word of God. Nehemiah says, you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them the right rules and the true laws, good statutes and commandments, and you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. So here, years later, Nehemiah is saying, here is where the law came from. God gave it to Moses, It wasn't something that was made up by men. Now, I told you several times today you'll hear about Jesus believing the Scriptures. Well, Jesus himself affirms the Old Testament Scriptures as being true and everlasting. Luke 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words. He's talking to those two disciples that he met on the, way to the road to Emmaus. These are my words I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses... And the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now what Jesus is saying by that terminology is this. That's an interchangeable phrase in the Bible for referring to all the Old Testament. So when Jesus said the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, in essence, Jesus' disciples, all the Old Testament, the canon of the Old Testament, they speak about me. Jesus also says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 19. He he said, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but but, but to fulfill them. But truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, we've already seen this in this series, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Hey, if you want to press Jesus, if you want to be impressive to Jesus, here's how you do it. You live your life. That, that doesn't earn your salvation. You don't work your way to heaven by it. But Jesus said, hey, if you want to be greatest in heaven, you better do what this book says. If you want to be least in heaven, you just ignore it. <laughs> and, and don't pay attention to what the Bible has to say. And the problem is we live in a culture today where they're ignoring the Word of God. And that's why we need to do needs to be needs to be central in the culture of that we live in. So to summarize the Old Testament canon, number one, the Jews believed it was true. They they perceived it was God's word and they protected it as God's word. They kept it around. They believed it was the word of God. Number two, Christ, Jesus said, Christ himself affirmed the truth of the Old Testament. Some 58 times, Jesus specifically quoted from individual passages of scriptures from the Old Testament. And then there are other times that he alluded to the whole Bible, like I said a moment ago, the law, the prophets, and, and the Psalms. And not just Jesus, but the other writers in the New Testament. 29 of the 39 Old Testament books are referenced and quoted as being authoritative by the New Testament writers. So the Old Testament canon, when you think about the Old Testament canon, that, that canon has been fulfilled. What about the New Testament canon then? How, how did the New Testament come about? Well, it really came about in a similar way. It wasn't some meeting of people getting together and saying, well, let's vote on it. It was over a period of time, the same as in the Old Testament, the people of God recognized the writings were God's Word as they were being written and preserved and circulated. By the end of the first century, and I think this is important and significant, by the end of the first century AD, all 27 New Testament books and letters had been written and been received by the churches as Scripture, and they referred to it as Scripture. Now, that might not impress you much, so let me give you some way to put it in context. Remember all those stats I talked about earlier. Over 1,500 years, 40 authors. That's talking about the whole Bible. Let's just talk about the New Testament for a minute. You've got those various authors of various that God is using to write the New Testament. It is being circulated in churches All across the Middle East, and in Asia, and even in Europe, because that's where the church of Rome was at. He's writing, the writers are writing to individual churches. Paul would write to the church at Colossae. He'd write to the church at Corinth. He'd write to the church at Rome. He'd write to the church at Philippi. And all of these are in various locations. Now, add to that, these people didn't get to fellowship with each other. Because of where it was located, you didn't have mass transit like we have today. You didn't have easy transfer of information like we have today with the internet. So it took a little period of time for these letters and books to circulate among all these churches. Yet somehow, all these people of various backgrounds and various cultures and different places across the Middle East wound up verifying and accepting all these different letters as being... The word of God. Now let me show you how amazing that is. You can't even get consensus in your own house about something. So you men are afraid to move right now. (laughs) I mean, even within your own family, sometimes you, you don't have the same opinion, the same ideas about things. Now expand that a little bit. I'm not just talking about in one home. Let's expand that out to churches in general. All these churches in the New Testament over a period of time accepted and adopted and understood this is the word of God. And they circulated it and they protected it as such. Tell me how in the world you would accomplish that today if God wasn't superintending that. Because we can't give churches in this day and time to agree about squat. We we can't get them to cooperate together to do things. Let me illustrate that for a moment. You've heard me talk about the pockets of lostness that I'm helping to try and deal with because where I work part-time for the Baptist State Convention. Pocket number 84 is in our back door here in Granite Falls. I don't like that, but because I don't like that doesn't do away with the reality that we have to own that and that we have a pocket of lostness in our backyard. So we started trying to motivate the churches within that three mile circle of the pocket of lostness 84 to try and let's see how we can work together and do things to engage lostness here in Granite Falls. We had several churches come to begin with, uh, right readily in one of the first meetings. Someone said, well, where do these stats come from? I'm like, well, I don't believe that, that we've got that many lost people here. Hey, I didn't like it either, but we have to own it. Amen. Just because you, just because you don't like the stats don't mean that they're not real. So we had several churches come together. You don't know how many churches at this point have agreed to try and work together to do something about the pocket of lostness? Us and two other churches. Now, I'm not going to tell you who they are because I'm not trying to shoot at them. I'm just giving you an illustration of how difficult it is to get churches in this day and time to agree on anything and work on the same thing. And yet somehow God superintended that all across Asia, all across the Middle even up into Europe, to where everyone had the consensus that this is the Word of God. Now, let me give you some examples in the New Testament, kind of like we did a a moment ago in the Old Testament. Paul refers to his own writings in 1 Corinthians. He says, if anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. So Paul's saying... I think I'm writing scripture. That God me to write scripture. Let's keep reading some other examples. Next slide. Examples uh, where Jesus commanded his disciples to teach all that he had commanded them. This thing we call the Great Commission. And Jesus said, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Notice this, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So Jesus is telling his disciples, I've taught you, you go teach someone else. You go share with someone else because what I have taught you is the word of God. Let's keep looking at some other examples. The New Testament refers to eyewitnesses when the eyewitnesses were still alive. Now here's the significance of that. Had Luke, for instance, as he writes, and I'll read it in just a moment, as he writes about eyewitnesses, had he written that, While the eyewitnesses were still alive, and they were, if Luke was lying, become lying Luke, if he was lying, those eyewitnesses could have said, no, wait a minute, that's not right. It was written when they were still alive, when they would be self-aware of what Luke was writing, and others in the New Testament were writing as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that we, that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So he's saying, Hey, I've talked to eyewitnesses. I've hung out with eyewitnesses and what I'm writing to you is an eyewitness account. If it were not so, those eyewitnesses would have said, no, wait a minute, Luke, that's not the truth. There wasn't really, we weren't really eyewitnesses. In, In 1 John chapter 1, we find these words. Which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. See, he's writing about Jesus and all this. And he's saying, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So here John is saying, we saw him, we touched him, we heard him, we heard the voice from heaven, we've seen all this stuff, we're telling you that it's true. He's writing an eyewitness account that others also, along with John, would have seen, and if that were incorrect when he's writing it while the eyewitnesses are still around, it's not like they were gone. It's not like they wouldn't know what was written. They would have refuted it and said, no, wait a minute, John, that's not really, really the truth. We also see in the New Testament, there's an expectation of these letters to be shared with the other churches. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says this, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. So he's writing to the church at Thessalonica, and he's saying under an oath before God, this is so important. You need to read it to everybody in the church. Was it just Paul's writing? He knew that. That's why he wanted everyone to hear it. In Colossians, he says this, and when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from from Laodicea. So he's doing exactly what I said took place. He's telling them, this letter is to you, but share it with the next church. And share it with the next church. And share it with the next church. Circulate it around, and that's what they did. And they all agreed these things were writings from God. Over a period of time, 1 Peter also tells us, 2 Peter rather tells us this. Peter gives a testimony about Paul's writings. He said, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. As he does in all his letters. And when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Would you agree with that? But notice what else he says. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. Notice this phrase: "As they do the other what scriptures." Scriptures. You you realize what Peter just did. He said, "Well, Paul writes a scripture. It is just like the other scriptures, not providentially provided." the word of god the canon of the old testament the canon of the new testament and led his people to accept them as his word so that's important but there's a second question that's more and that's also really important and here's the second question what has ultimate authority the church or the bible Another way to interpret that or say that question is this, what has ultimate authority, men or God? Now, this is what I warned you about earlier, so don't take what I'm about to say as an an attack against Catholicism. Although you should see in this part of the message some true concerns about what the Catholic Church teaches. Because the Catholic Church teaches that the traditions of men, the traditions that the Pope comes up with and other leaders and other councils come up with, is just as important, if not more so important, than the Bible. And like I said, I know they're good Catholics. I mean, Billy Graham said he fellowship with a lot of Billy. Billy Graham knew that they were good honest, Christ-believing, Christ-following Catholics who grew up in the Catholic Church. And like I said earlier, we have people who are in Protestant churches and Baptist churches that make up our own traditions, you know, uh, that they wind up elevating as being as much true as as the Bible. But this is an important question. Does a church have authority over Scripture's or does the Scripture have authority over the church? Is it the opinion and the Word of God that matters or the opinion of men that comes first? And to help us answer that. We're going to look at Catholicism to begin with. And then we're going to look at the Protestant Church. Protestant Church is Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, you know, the mainline denominations that we think of in, in America. Catholicism, the church, they believe this, the church can make authoritative traditions that are just as important or even more important than the scriptures. Here's some examples that Erwin Luther points out in, in his book. First of all, Catholicism teaches the church, and by that it's meaning the pope and the councils that they have there, the, the meetings they have, religious councils. Catholicism teaches that the church has authority over Scripture, and that the church is just as infallible, if not more infallible, than the Bible. Now that stance, you'll see in just a moment, is a really, really dangerous stance. Here's a quote from Catholicism. It doesn't matter whether it's in the Bible, the teachings of the church is just as binding as the Scripture's. So so that's where some of the stuff comes from that you can't find in the Bible. Like praying to Mary. Show it to me in the Bible. You you can't find it. Purgatory. Show it to me in the Bible. You can't find purgatory. But it's taught as a tradition of men. They, They believe that grace is imparted by communion. And we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper the Sunday after Easter. But that doesn't mean when you partake of that, all of a sudden grace comes into your body. Grace comes into our lives when we trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's God's grace to us, undeserving as we are, that that, that God offers us salvation through faith. But... They say this, even though it's not in the Bible, though even though those things aren't in the Bible, if the church teaches those things, if they adopt those things as traditions, then the traditions that they adopt is just as important as anything that's found in the Bible. And if you can't find it there, it doesn't matter if the church says it's true. Now, now here's, here's the big danger in that. That leaves faith, what we believe and practice, up to a man or men instead of God. And that's the dangerous thing. Pope Pius IX at the First Vatican Council of 1870 made this dogmatic statement. Here's what he said about himself I am tradition. Now, here's what he means by that whatever I say goes. Whatever I say is true, you have to follow it, whether it's in the Bible or not. And folks, that's dangerous. That would be the same thing if all of a sudden at Day 3 Church, you start showing up on Sunday, and me started, and, and I started telling you things that you have to do that aren't in the Bible. And, and I start coming up with my own ideas, my own mentality, and I start telling you, you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to do this. And it's not in the Bible at all. Should you listen to what I say if what I say cannot be supported by the Scriptures? And the answer to that is no. When we're in church, I think about putting a descriptive word in front of that. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we need the Bible. I'm not authoritative. I'm not infallible. But thank God the Word of God is infallible. And and that's why we need to check things out by the Scriptures. If you ever wonder why in the world I put so many Scriptures in a message, here's why. I don't want you to believe me. I want you to believe the Bible. Because it's the Bible that's authoritative. And it's a dangerous, sleepy slope anytime you start saying that men can add things to the Bible. Some Roman Catholics, not all, but some Roman Catholics, there's a movement in Catholicism to where they want the Virgin Mary to be considered, they want her to be considered a co-redeemer with Jesus. Now, that's not been voted on, and it's not been made authoritative yet, and it's not been made a tradition yet. But if they ever decide to vote upon that, and they make that a tradition, they will say that's true, and you have to hold to it whether the Bible teaches it or not. Folks, there's only one Redeemer. There's only one that was virgin-born. There's only one that lived a sinless life. There's only one that had God's blood in His veins and went to the cross and shed His blood for our sins. It is our perfect sacrifice. It is heresy to think about making anybody a co-redeemer. Here's what Jesus said about this kind of stuff. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Not the scripture. Why are they walking according to the traditions of men is what they're saying. But eat with defiled hands. And he said to them, <laughs> Jesus was always sensitive about what he said to the Pharisees, wasn't he? <laughs> well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? <laughs> As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Now that's what Jesus said. And you think people would read that and that would fix some things about Catholicism. But you also would think people would read that and it would fix some things even about our conservative Baptist churches to where we make up our own man-made rules and you can't even find it and support in the Bible. I'm breaking one today. I don't have a suit on. I didn't dress up for God this morning. It's more important what's in here than it is what's out here. Some of you ladies are breaking things, the traditions of men. God help you, you didn't wear a dress this morning. The way you wear your hair, or the way you, don't, you ladies don't have a head covering on, by the way. The traditions of being. I, I don't try and do it just to be rebellious, but I'm kindly, I, I kind of I go against the rub on traditions like that, you know. you know. Amen. Here's the honest truth about. here. here I'm going to say this for my Harley Davidson friends. You know? <laughs> <laughs> the main reason I didn't buy a Harley Davidson when I bought my last motorcycle. Is because people made it sound like if you don't have a heart, it's like you had to do it. If you tell me something, if you tell me I have to do something, I'm probably going to do the opposite. <laughs> this is the way I'm wired. Yep. <laughs> so, so, so anyway, that, but that's just, I'm just illustrating that for a point. And, and that is we, we can't go with the traditions of men. We we have to go with what the Bible has to say. Catholics believe the church gave birth to the Bible. The church meaning the Roman Catholic Church, that they gave birth to the Bible. And in a debate that was taking place between Martin Luther, who started the Reformation, and a Roman Catholic by the name of Johann Eck. Here's what Johann Eck said. The scriptures are not authentic except by God. The authority of the church. This is only true if we say it's true, is what he was saying. And that's a problem. That's a dangerous problem. So what do Protestants believe? Like, What do we believe? What are we supposed to believe? Well, here's what Protestants believe. The Bible alone is God's Word. And thus authoritative. The Bible alone is God's Word. And thus authoritative. There's a Latin phrase. Sola Scriptura. That literally means this. The Scriptures alone. Here's what John MacArthur. And John MacArthur probably love you. You're familiar with him. Some of you may not be. He's a, a great pastor. Been a great theologian for years. Wrote his own set of commentaries. Also uh, pastors of a church in California. Here's what he said about this. The reformation principle of sola scriptura has to do with the sufficiency of scripture as our supreme authority in all spiritual matters. Sola scriptura simply means that all truth necessary for our salvation and spiritual life is taught either explicitly or implicitly in the scripture. Boil down what he's saying is this. <laughs> this is what has authority. The church doesn't have authority over this. This has authority over the church. And and that's why we need to understand the Bible is real and the Bible is true. And we need to trust in the Scriptures. Whereas Catholicism, where they believe the church is infallible, just as infallible as the Bible, Protestants, I guess, we're just messed up. We're a bunch of sinners. Saved by grace. Protestants believe that God used fallible men sinful men and he gave them an infallible word now hopefully you already understand that but just a couple of illustrations to prove it would be David David wrote the Psalms and yet you remember David was really really squeaky clean he never did anything wrong I mean, the truth of the matter is God wouldn't let him build the temple because God said, you're a bloody man. The truth of the matter is he went out on his rooftop When he should have been in the battle in the fight with all the rest of his men, and he looked across the way and he saw a beautiful woman, and he sent after her, committed adultery with her. She conceived a child. He's trying to hide the conception of that child, has her husband to be murdered in battle, and then he takes her to his wife trying to cover it all up. The problem is this. You can't hide anything from God. And yet... God said he's a man after my own heart. And God used a sinner, God used a fallible man to write an infallible word. Right. Think about Peter for a minute. If I'm looking for someone myself to write a couple of books in the New Testament, I don't think I'm going to go tap the guy on the shoulder that denied Jesus three times. And yet Peter was a human and he was perpetuous. He'd stick his foot in his mouth like we do a lot of times. But God took a fallible man and gave him an infallible word. Paul. He wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else. He was out hunting down Christians to take them to be put in jail, crucified, murdered, whatever, until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. God took, an inf- God took a fallible, sinful Saul and he turned him into the Apostle Paul and he wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else. That's what Protestants believe that God inspired sinful men, fallible men to write the scriptures. And you see, I think that's powerful because you see, the important thing isn't us, it's Him. It's not what I write, it's not what I say, it's Him. And that's why I think that's a, an important truth for us to recognize. Protestants believe this. They believe the Bible is either God's word or it's not. You don't have it both ways. It's either God's word or it's not. And if it is God's word, it has final authority. Now, here's the way Erwin Lutzer illustrated that in the book, if you happen to be reading the book. He said, if Abraham Lincoln writes a letter by his own hand, whether or not people accept it as being his letter, it's still his letter. Because he wrote it. The flip side of that is this. If he didn't write a letter, and all the men in the world vote to say that's a letter from Abraham Lincoln, that still doesn't make it a letter from Abraham Lincoln because he didn't write it. It was just something that men voted on. So the way that translates over to us concerning the scriptures is this. It's either God's word or it isn't. If it's God's word, it doesn't matter if everyone on planet earth says, I don't believe that's God's word. That doesn't change it. It is still God's word. Whether anyone ever accepted it as such. The great thing is they did over all those years. Recognize it and protect it and preserve it as a canon of scripture. And the flip side of it is this. It doesn't matter if we vote on it or whether we don't vote on it. If it's His Word, it's His Word. Because He's the one that wrote the Scriptures. I'm pretty much going to read some Scriptures to you. We're done, but I'm going to read some Scriptures to you a couple times now and and then in just a moment. Deuteronomy 4, 2. You shall not add to the Word that I command you, nor take from it. That you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I commanded you. Ephesians 2:20. He's talking about the, 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 the church. It's being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. By him saying the apostles and the prophets, he's talking about this, what they wrote, not their lives. Revelation chapter 22, verse 18 through 19. This is a passage that's really taken out of context a lot of times. People will use it to say, well, you shouldn't use any translation except the 1911 King James. Number one, you've never seen a 1911 King James. Or 1611, I said 1911. You've probably seen a 1911 King James. 1611 used the Elizabethan spelling and things like that. You can't even read some of the spelling that's there. But some people take that opinion. Well, that, you know, that's the only Bible you can read. I, I got news for you. There was an Old Testament that was written in Hebrew. And there's a New Testament that was written in Greek and Aramaic before King James was ever born. That might come as a shock to some people. But they'll point to this scripture and they'll say, oh, your translation changed words. That's not what I was talking about. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life in the holy city, which are described in this book. That's a pretty serious statement. And it's a statement that alludes specifically to Revelation, but in a larger format to Scripture. God protected the Bible God provided the Bible the canon of scripture is complete within a hundred years of the beginning of the church within that first hundred years all 27 books of the New Testament had been written and it had been agreed upon by all those churches that I said that's amazing isn't it that's a, think about human nature. Let's go back to them. not that amazing? We can't agree on nothing, but all those churches over that period of time agreed, Protected the Scriptures. God providentially provided the Scriptures through men. Guided them by their Holy Spirit. In light of 1,500 years... 40 writers, various locations where it was written, the many churches in the different locations and cultures, and yet having that unity of the message in all the Scriptures, both in the Old and New Testaments, it's evident to me this truth. God providentially provided and protected the Scriptures to where we can have confidence this is the Word of God. Read some Scripture to you, and then we're closed. Every word of God proves true. He's a shield of those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and found a liar. Psalms twelve, six and seven The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth. Purified seven times thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Psalm 117 For his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endureth forever. Romans chapter 3 And let God be true, though every one were a liar. It's not up to men. God's true, no matter what anyone says about it. God's Word is truth. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. See, we don't have the right to judge God. And when you try and judge God, if you'll be honest with the Scriptures, you're going to discover something. God is right and you're wrong. God is true and you're the one that's in error. But God will get to judge us. Because it's not the church that has authority, it's the Scriptures that has authority. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for loving us so much that you sent your word to us. Father, we thank you for the parts of it we don't like. (laughs) Because if it wasn't for you telling us we're sinners, we may not have an awareness of that. If it wasn't for you telling us we can't save ourselves, we might keep trying to save ourselves. Lord, you tell us that you gave us your, your word, not in order that we might work our way to heaven. That's not the purpose of the law. You gave it to us to show us how far short we fall, how much we need grace, how big of a sinners we all are that can't save ourselves. Father, we thank you also. You're not, you not You gave us more than just... Your word letting us know we're sinners, but you gave us your word to tell us how we can be saved. You gave us your word to tell us that you loved us so much you sent your son to die on a cross. That he lived a perfect life, that he carried your blood to the cross, and what he did on the cross is sufficient to pay for my sin and the sin of all mankind. If they'll place their faith in him. Father, if there's someone today in this place that has not trusted Christ as Savior, maybe they've been struggling with the truth of the Scriptures. Father, I pray this series is helping people to understand how true Your Word is and how real You are. And Lord, if there's someone here that needs to trust in You. Now, Father, I pray You help those of us that know Christ as our Savior already to celebrate that you've changed our lives to celebrate that you've given us your word in this time of invitation. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon audio production from Day 3 Church. We pray that it has ministered to you. For more information about our location, service times, or other sermon podcasts, please visit us online at day 3 Day 3 Church. Experience a new day in your life.